Hey everyone, as we are all sheltering in place these days, I don't know what your family's doing, but my family is watching movies. <laughs> We're watching more movies and TV shows than, than we normally do. And one of the kinds of movies that we love are the underdog movies. I grew up watching like sports underdog movies, Rudy, Hoosiers, Remember the Titans, and one of my favorite series growing up was the Rocky series. In fact, I was in the theater on Winchester Boulevard when Rocky III came out. And it's such a great movie. It's the one with Mr. T and, and, um, and the wrestler Hulk Hogan. Remember those guys? And at the end of the movie, everybody's super energized as we're leaving the theater. And I started to dance around like I was a boxer, but I fell flat on my face in front of a whole bunch of people. And so, of course, 14-year-old Sean, not really like anybody, was completely embarrassed. And I was ready for this humiliation to come from this crowd of strangers, but something different happened instead. Somebody shouted out in a slow motion type of voice, Get up! You can do it, man! And then somebody else said, Come on, dude! Just get up! And so I started playing along and I'm getting up really slowly. And when I finally made it to my feet, everybody starts cheering and, and applauding. And I raise my hands like the champ. And as I walk out of the theater, I'm just high-fiving people left and right. It was a moment that I, I thought would end in humiliation, but it actually turned into exaltation. <laughs> and you know, most of our embarrassing stories don't go that way. Most of the time, we just wanna get on with life as quickly as possible, nothing to see here, move it along. In fact, let me ask you a question. What's one of your most embarrassing moments? Maybe that's a question you can talk about in your life group this week. But you know, sometimes, sometimes we make mistakes or we have failures and those things bring on an experience that's far worse than embarrassment. Sometimes others can heap humiliation on us even when we've done nothing at all to trigger it. So let me ask you another question. How has your experience been in life with humiliation? You now, sometimes we can go even beyond that. Sadly, sometimes we can think instead of I made a mistake, we think I am a mistake. Instead of, I failed at something, I, I am a failure. And that's, that's called shame. And so let me ask you a third question, maybe a little deeper, maybe a little more painful. How has shame affected your life? I like how Brene Brown, the PhD researcher on shame and well-known author, defines the topic. She says that she defines it as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore we're unworthy of love and belonging. The very things really that, that we're made for. She says, something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. 
The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung called shame a soul-killing emotion. And when we read the scriptures and we think about this theologically, we know that shame is both anti-creational and it's anti-human. You see, the reason why shame is so painful is because it's dehumanizing to us. Genesis chapter 1 says that we are created in the image of a connecting God, a relational God. And then there's no shame at all that exists in the world, Genesis chapter 2. But we know how the story goes. Sin enters the world. Our brokenness enters the world, Genesis chapter 3. And all sorts of dehumanizing things are unleashed and shame is among them. And you know, even though, even though we can read the scriptures and be reminded again and again and again about the gospel story that God loves us unconditionally and forever, that he comes to this earth and he dies for you and for me because of his great love for us, and that he offers us life eternally with him and in him, even though we know that, none of us, none of us has a life totally free of of all shame. In fact, shame is endemic to our fallen nature. And so none of us gets a pass. But what if it didn't have to be that way? I mean, what if we could live in a world where where the power of shame was absent? What if our children and grandchildren could grow up and and, and exist in the world where shame was actually defeated and we learned how to see one another and how to treat one another with something much, much better? What if instead of shame, the common human experience was honor? And not just any honor, but honor given out of a heart of love, even when it's not deserved. The honor in life for you and for me from God is so powerful. I mean, think about this for a minute. How many people experience more honor than shame? But what if honor was so prevalent in our world that it changed everything? What if honor was so so common in your life that it it could change you. I just I just think that honor is is so powerful. The, the kind of honor that, that God gives out of a heart of love, the kind of honor that we can give to one another, that it will actually be life-changing for us. And so honor is the next word in our ongoing series, six words that will change your life. It's a, it's a slow walk that we've been doing together through Psalm 23. We're in week four of six in this slow journey through this ancient psalm that, that has become so relevant to our lives. And every week we've been choosing a different word, really a different theme. And what we're seeing is that when, when we embrace the reality of that theme and we live that out in our lives, it changes us. And so last week, we emerged from the dark, dangerous part of the journey, the valley of the shadow of death, with incredible hope. And now we continue on in this psalm to this beautiful part, but also also this strange part of the psalm. 
And what we're going to find there is this shalom, this peace that God offers. We're going to find connection and incredible abundance. And all of it is wrapped up in honor. This part of the psalm is impossible to think about sometimes because we just, we just don't even believe that it can happen this way. I mean, listen to what verse 5 says. It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I mean, when does that happen? We could talk all day about that part of the verse, but it goes on. There's more. It says, you anoint my head with oil. And so in the ancient Hebrew culture, being anointed with oil was for the elite. It was for the prophets and the priests and the kings. And they were anointed with oil oftentimes before they had done anything to deserve it. It's this undeserved honor given to them. And then finally it says, my cup overflows. And the cup was symbolic of somebody's life. Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering at the end of his life. And the psalmist here says, my cup, my life overflows. This is the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10. And so listen to what we have. Eating with the enemy." being honored and called forth, even when we don't deserve it, an abundant life. Really? <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's hard for me to really believe this, if, I, if I'm being honest, because it almost sounds like it's an overpromise. And I sort of wonder if, there's, if it's going to be under-delivered. I think this is the hardest part of the psalm to really embrace as reality. I mean, not uh, cognitively or, or theologically, but emotionally and relationally. And we're going to get there, but first I, I just want to say, man, thanks for being the church, Saratoga Federated. You guys have been amazing. I've been watching and listening to all of these stories of people encouraging one another, serving one another, connecting one another to resources and other people. And it's been beautiful. And so many of you have reached out to me in various ways and, and you've shared what you're learning and what you're seeing in Psalm 23. And it's made me feel connected. And I've, I've loved that. In fact, when we get through with this whole time, I just think we ought to have a big party. I mean, I want to have a big party with the two people that I connected with this week that have tested positive for COVID-19. I have to be honest with you. I called to encourage them, but they called, they ended up encouraging me even more to hear their stories and their positive attitudes and, and, and how people have been supporting them and the ministries that they've been a part of. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But I think we ought to have a big party. But since we can't have that yet, how about we look at a story from the New Testament about a big party? In fact, it's a party that Jesus went to at Matthew's house. And you can find this in Matthew chapter 9. It's the calling of Matthew who writes the gospel of Matthew and is one of Jesus' disciples. He also goes by the name Levi, and you can find this story in Luke chapter 5 or Mark chapter 2. But here's how Matthew 
tells his story. Starting down in verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now that's a really short verse, a really short sentence, but we have to pause there because it's easy to just move on and not feel the weight of what's going on there. Matthew's life is radically changed. He goes from being a tax collector to a disciple of Jesus. This incredible honor. And he hadn't done anything to deserve it. Why would Matthew change his life like that? In verse 10, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, Luke says it was a great banquet. So this is like a massive party. And Mark says that there were tons, there were many tax collectors and sinners that weren't just partying with Jesus, but they were following Jesus. And so in many ways, this is Jesus' scene. These are his people. It's just another day at the office for Jesus. It's how he lived his life. Verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked, his, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, why is Jesus doing a shameful thing and eating with shameful people? Because good rabbis just don't do that. So what's up with Jesus? Why is he so countercultural? And we have to feel the weight of this as well, because this isn't just, okay, Jesus is hanging out with the riffraff or the wrong crowd. This is a moral judgment on the character of Jesus and the calling of Jesus and how he was fulfilling his ministry role as the Messiah. Verse 12, Jesus answers them and he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And here's where Luke and Mark add the phrase, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this would have been a massive slap in the face of the religious leaders because, first of all, they saw themselves as the righteousness gurus. I mean, they were the righteous ones, and so they saw themselves as both healthy and righteous, but the irony is that they were neither. And you know, this is where, this is where I have to pause, because it's easy to sort of kick around the Pharisees. We like to do that sometimes, but I'm guilty of the same thing. I'm guilty of making these moral judgments of other people. And so we have to walk slowly through the scriptures and reflect because when we walk slowly, we can start to see things. In verse 13, it says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And here's where Matthew adds in, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. But that phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, it comes from the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Hosea, which is a love story. And this, again, would have been another slap right in the face of the Pharisees and the scribes and all of these religious leaders because they were the learned ones. 
I mean, Jesus, you tell, you tell me to go and learn. I know the scriptures. You see, the problem is, is that in all of their biblical knowledge and in, in all of their religiosity, in all of their perfectionism, they were really, really good at sacrificing, but they were really, really bad at mercy. And in their lives, they ended up missing the beautiful heart of God when it was right in front of them. But you know who didn't miss the heart of God? Matthew didn't miss the heart of God. I love a good underdog story. And Matthew's story is an example of that. Because of his chosen profession, by all accounts, he would have been steeped in a ton of shame in his culture. Matthew would have been absolutely hated by his own people, and he would have been just used by his enemies, the Romans. I mean, no doubt he probably made a ton of money because of his chosen profession, but he would have been hated and feared, not loved by his neighbors. And he would have been strategically used as a tool by the Romans, but then just discarded when they didn't need him anymore. And here's Matthew, undeserving of any type of honor. Everybody hates him from both sides, and Jesus comes along and honors them. Why does the story go this way? You know, if you've heard of Matthew, then I, I know you know that tax collectors and sinners were synonymous at the times, and many of them lived up to that reputation. But I think there's something deeper to the story that, that we actually can miss when we don't consider the historical or the cultural location of this story. You see, it takes place in this little fishing village on the north shore of Galilee called Capernaum. I got to spend some time there on my trip to Israel a couple of years ago, and I sat on the seashore looking out at the Sea of Galilee, and I just, I just imagined what it must have been like to grow up in this town. Five of Jesus' disciples come from this town. It was the hometown of Peter and Andrew, who were brothers. It was the hometown of James and John, who were also brothers. And Jesus leaves Nazareth and he walks along this road and he relocates his home base in Capernaum. And so now he lives there as well, maybe in his own house, maybe with Peter, we don't know. And here's where Jesus launches his ministry from. In Isaiah chapter nine, it, it tells us that, that this place was sacred and special because God was going to do something new in this area, Galilee of the Gentiles. A light was going to shine. There was going to be a movement of God in this area. And we also learn in Ezekiel chapter 34 that God was fed up with the leaders of Israel. They weren't shepherding like good shepherds. And so God himself was going to come and be their shepherd. And at the time of Jesus, it was believed that that's what the Messiah was going to do. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and launches his ministry, and he calls 12 disciples to himself. There's 12 tribes of Israel. And the way that the Israelites thought at the time was that the Messiah would come and restore the 12 tribes of Israel. And in restoring Israel, 
God would restore and heal the whole world. This was the ancient Jewish expectation and hope. And Jesus comes, calls 12 disciples, and the symbolism would have been there for everybody to see. He's proclaiming that he is fulfilling that role as Messiah. Now, not everybody agreed at how he fulfilled that role, and this is part of the reason why he ends up on the cross later on. But it would have been an honor to be one of those 12 disciples. And here's Matthew in this town, in the middle of it. But really, he's on the outside looking in. Capernaum, it was also this sort of strategic place as well. It was a small village, maybe 1,200 people, but there was a road that went from Damascus all the way down to Egypt. It's a 4,000-year-old road, and lots of money and trade took place on this route. And lots of information traveled up and down this route. Everybody knew what was going on because the travelers and the tradesmen would tell the story. So everybody knows about Jesus. And this is the town that Matthew grows up in. He's got this wealth coming through up and down. It's a great place to get rich. And then And then he's got this other thing going on because at the same time, there is this religious, spiritual, beautiful revival going on. John the Baptist is at the height of his ministry. In fact, two of Jesus' disciples, at least we know Andrew and John, were disciples of John the Baptist first. And everybody's coming to see John. People are coming from around the countryside. They're coming all the way from Jerusalem. In fact, The the religious leaders and even soldiers are coming to ask John questions to find out what he's doing. And John keeps saying, I'm going to prepare the way. I'm going to prepare the way. Somebody's coming after me. And Jesus comes after him, launches this ministry. And now we have these two choices sitting in front of this young man named Matthew. Why does he choose to become a tax collector, somebody that would be hated by everybody. Why does he choose to go to the dark side? I mean, Peter and Andrew, they seem to be doing well. They were leaders and business owners. James and John, they're they're, they're doing the same thing. And, and, And they're spiritually hungry. In fact, Andrew and John would have been known by everybody, high profile because of John the Baptist. But what's the deal with Matthew? I wish we knew. <laughs> it's, I have a lot of questions for Matthew. So we don't know all the answers to those things, but what we do know is that Jesus comes along and Matthew would have known who Jesus is and he would have heard about the miracles and Matthew's sitting at the tax collector booth and Jesus says, come and follow me. And he hadn't done anything to deserve it. Me? Me come and follow you? I mean, we have to sink down in to the character of Matthew. You want me, a sinner, a tax collector, to follow you? And then Jesus takes it even further. He goes to Matthew's house and he sits down at the table and he has fellowship with Matthew, the person that was supposed to be his enemy. In fact, Matthew would have been the enemy because he's working for the enemy. 
And Jesus brings love and peace and connection and abundance. And it's all wrapped up in honor that's given out of a heart of love. What are some of the things we can take away from this, from this passage? You know, as I, as I think about this, I, I, I see some patterns in Jesus' life, in this passage and really all over the Gospels. And one of the patterns I see is that Jesus lived an invitational life. I mean, with Jesus, there always seemed to be room for one more at the party. His friend card was never too full. And I love that about Jesus. Another pattern in his life was that he had intimate relationships and his friendships were just, were just close. They went, they went beyond the surface level. And that's, that's hard to do because, because you have to have the guts sometimes to ask the hard question and to talk about the difficult stuff because that's one of the ways we grow closer together. And then another pattern that I see in Jesus is incredible courage. He went against the grain of his own culture and he was willing to take the heat for doing so. And so you have these three things. You have an invitational life. You have intimate friendships. And then you have courage. And I wish, I wish it was as easy as saying, hey, take these three things and call me in the morning because everything's going to be okay. <laughs> but we know that life doesn't work that way. In fact, life is a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more beautiful than that. And you're a lot more intelligent than that. In fact, those kinds of sermons usually don't have lasting effect. And so how do we work this out? How does that become a reality for us? You know, I think it's, I think it's probably one person at a time. <laughs> it's asking the question, and I've, I've been asking this question in, in my life this week, and this has been a difficult week for me with this passage. I've been wrestling with it because there's some things I don't like about it. I don't want to sit down with my enemy and have a meal and have fellowship and have an intimate friendship. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want the courage part, but man, I don't know about that. I mean, I want to be honored and I, I want to have my life be abundant, but it's hard. And so one of the things I've been asking myself is, who are the Matthews and where are the Matthew parties that I need to celebrate at? What would that be like for you to honor somebody in your life that, that doesn't even deserve it? To honor our children when they're not behaving like they should, when they're not acting like we want them to act either. To honor our spouse, to honor our friends, to honor our brothers and sisters, to honor our fellow humanity. You know, it's an interesting thing as we're all in shelter in place because I think one of the ways that we are actually honoring one another, and especially those frontline workers, is simply by staying home and holding tight and praying and encouraging and serving one another in the safest way possible. 
This is, this is a great way to honor people, people that we don't even know. And you know, there's probably a lot of ways to work that out. It's not easy. It is complicated. But what we do know is that honor given out of a heart of love is life-changing. I love, I love underdog stories. And I also love not just the sports stories, but I love... I love the, the fairy tales. I love, I love what, one of the stories that I love is, is Cinderella. And even, like, I like all the versions. Uh, Walt Disney, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, and all that. But the thing about Cinderella is I don't think anybody knows exactly where the story originated. And so the story is really all over the world, and there's lots of versions of it. And so sometimes Cinderella is actually a guy, believe it or not. <laughs> and sometimes... Sometimes the stepmother and sisters get boiled alive, and so it can get kind of violent, especially with the old stories. In some versions, the stepsisters actually chop, chop part of their feet off to try to fit in to the, to the slipper. And in some versions, Cinderella's father is still alive, and he's actually part of the problem. But I think it's a beautiful story, and it's a story of honor. In one of the versions, after the stepsisters have tried to unsuccessfully fit into the slipper, the prince says to Cinderella's father, have you no other daughters? No, said the man. There is this little stunted kitchen wench, which my late wife left behind, but she cannot be the bride. The prince said to send her up to him, but the stepmother answered, Oh no, she's much too dirty. She cannot show herself. But he absolutely ins insisted on it, and Cinderella had to be called. She first washed her hands and her face clean, and then went and bowed down before the king's son, who gave her the golden slipper. She then seated herself on a stool, drew her foot out of the heavy wooden shoe, and put it into the slipper, which fit like a glove. And when she rose up and the king's son looked at her in the face, he recognized the beautiful maiden who he had danced with the night before. And he cried out, this is the true bride. The stepmother and two sisters were horrified and became pale with rage. But the prince took Cinderella on his horse and rode away with her. And this is the gospel story. The heroine is unveiled in all of her glory. I like the way that the author John Eldridge talks about this story. He says that she finally rises up to her full height. She's been mocked and hated and laughed at and spit upon, but Cinderella is the one. She's the one that the slipper fits. She's the one that the prince is in love with. She's the true bride, just as we are, anointed, blessed, with abundance. And this is honor, and it changes lives. It changed Cinderella in the fantasy tale. It changed Matthew 2,000 years ago, and it can change us as well. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, thank you for the incredible honor that you shower on us. Even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it, you come and call us to follow you. And so I pray this week we would hear that call. I pray also this week that we would consider what it means to have enemies and to sit down and to dine at the table with our enemies. Our culture doesn't want us to do that. But you say, love your enemies and pray for them. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And so God, we want to do that. We want to walk into those difficult waters. And God, we we know that as we do, we are following in your footsteps. And so help us to follow by honoring one another. May shame be depowered in our lives and may we live with incredible honor and as a result, experience transformation. Amen.